You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text this morning continues in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, where Paul continues in writing, and he says this, Not that I have already reached the goal, or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is God's word. Be seated. Good morning, good morning, good morning. As you uh, have just seen, we are, if you have your Bibles or apps or whatever you have with you, uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses tw- starting in verse 12. We're going to go all the way to 4, the first chapter, the first verse of chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles or uh, one of your own, of course, we have a stack of free ones in the back, our gift to you. Please feel free to grab one of those. Uh, I'm Chad, one of the pastors here at King's Cross, and um, we're going to normally teach through books of the Bible together. We're going we're gonna to follow, follow through with what God's teaching us, and in Philippians is where we happen to find ourselves. Uh, we've been in our seventh week of Philippians, and it is quickly coming to an end. Somewhat sad, bittersweet. Such great text uh, that we've been able to dwell in, and um, I know that personally have I've been blessed by them. Um, and I hope you have too. And if you, if you want to go back, we have uh, sermon audio from uh, previous passages that you can hear and listen to. Uh, today we're going to be looking together at God's heavenly call in Christ. Um, would you join me in prayer so we might ask the Holy Spirit to, to guide our time here together? Uh, Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for your promise that uh, your word will not return void. God, I ask that you fill this time, that your spirit would be evident, that your spirit would work in each of our lives. And then as we walk out of here today, we might be more captivated by Christ. Lord, that we would see him as our greatest prize. Lord, teach us what we do not already know. Grow us as we know you will that your spirit instruct us through your word. And God, that we'd walk out of here more obedient and more ardently pursuing and following after Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. It's, uh, it's tough being perfect, isn't it? <laughs> Any perfectionists in here that are like shaking their head like, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, the realist are just looking at me with nasty grin faces, right? You guys are? Uh, I, I, I see you in here, scrunching up your noses. Who's perfect, right? Uh, Paul has taken a, a term here. A common phrase would be, nobody is perfect, right? You've heard this before. 
often a dismissal of some error, right? Somebody messes up, our kids mess up, I'm telling them, hey, nobody's perfect, don't worry about it. If I mess up, I'm like, hey, Chad, nobody's perfect. But it's a common phrase we're familiar with. Paul, Paul's taking a turn here, and he's actually combating an idea of perfectionism. Um, not in the sense of absolutely doing everything 100% right, but it's actually a common uh, belief, something that's shown up throughout church history in, in different places uh, has been taught, that we as believers can at some point reach a morally sinless performance. Okay? Hopefully everyone here is going, what? Are you kidding me? I woke up this morning and I was sinning. As I was thinking, like, oh, the words I thought about my alarm clock. Um, you know, uh, of course you got an extra hour, so I don't want to hear that. Um, but true, right? We, it can't, some of us may, maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've been in some uh, traditions where that's been taught. And Paul is trying to press and push back against this, against the idea that there is some way in which we could achieve perfection. In the last passage that we spoke about, he was trying to turn the Philippians' uh, eyes away from all of their performance, all of their uh, right living. We see that there were law keepers who were trying to convince them that there were certain things they needed to do, uh, like specifically circumcision, keeping the Old Testament law. And Paul's saying, all those things are not terrible, all those things are not bad, but all those things are not your Savior. They're not your salvation. They will not achieve what only Christ has achieved. Look at him. Don't have confidence in yourself. Have confidence in him. And he very specifically talks about his own perfection, about his, not perfection, but his own achievements and his own pedigree, if you will, and, and, and says it's all rubbish. It's all dung is the translation we see in the CSB. Uh, it's garbage. We wouldn't keep it in our house compared to knowing Christ. And now he quickly makes a turn somewhat when he starts at the beginning of this by saying, not that I've achieved that. I haven't achieved knowing Christ. That's not even something that I can fully achieve. To, to, to grasp him in this life, in myself, and to become perfectly like him. And that's where he turns here in this next passage. Because I think ultimately, and there's so much we can un unwrap in this passage. If anything, if you've been here several weeks, you know I have a hard time keeping it tight. All right, there's a lot to talk about. Um, and so I want to focus our time and try to be very clear to the fact that if we walk out of here with nothing else, that we understand that our spiritual maturity is pursuing the prize of knowing Christ. Because perfection in this life Perfection is only going to come through the power of Christ. And that's what Paul's laying out. He ends that way. He ends with this great crescendo. This is somewhat of a bookend of a very central portion of this text. Next week, he gets very practical with some specific names involved. I mean, I don't know about you. I don't, it's, it's not the most flattering way to call somebody out in a letter. But you know what? He does speak specifically to two cases or a situation in the church. So this week he wraps up and he, he goes through this last note, this last earnest appeal to the Philippians. And he takes a turn at the end to finally, as he's pointing out that they're not going to reach perfection, and he turns his attention toward heaven, toward glory, toward future perfection. And there's a lot of misconceptions about heaven. Maybe you had some of your own. I know I had a lot of different ideas about it. I mean, I'm not thinking we're going to be angels, and hopefully you understand that's not the case either. But we get it. There's culturally, there's a lot of senses in which they talk about what heaven's going to look like. Uh, Mark Twain, in his book, Huck Finn, he talks about an exchange where Miss Watson, who's the uh, persistent Christian lady that's trying to get Huck Finn to act right, uh, is, is talking to Huck, and Huck speaks about when she starts to talk about heaven. He says, she went on and told me all about your good place. She said all a body uh, would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and not sin, and sing, I'm sorry, harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. Come on, that doesn't sound appealing, does it? Let's be real honest. If you've thought that way about it, trust me, that's not it. That's not the glory that Paul's talking about. That's not what heaven that, that the Bible speaks of. So if you ever have a thought in your head like, maybe one day I'll be in heaven, are we going to get bored? That's not what Paul's trying to point the Philippians to. There's a greater glory that he's pointing them to. 
He's grading, he's pointing them to. Believers, look, this is not our home, our perfection, our achievements. All await the future glory with our Savior. And unbeliever, if you're here today or you're listening, Christians aren't perfect. Maybe that's not a surprise to you, hopefully. We're not perfect. Some of us may uh, unintentionally act like we are at times. But, but the truth is, you need to not look at us. Look at how Christ leads us. He is our hope. He is our perfecter. We're, we're all just growing and learning. And so we look at the text, and we look uh, in this text that Paul wants to talk about four imperatives, four directions that Paul wants to drive home for them. He wants us to know that we need to pursue Christ as our prize. We need to live obedient as God brings illumination. Live obedient as God teaches and instructs us. Third, to imitate faithful believers as a guard of our life, to guard our life. And finally, to trust in the power of Christ to perfect us. So let's dig in first in the first section of this in chapter 3, starting in verse 12. In verse 12, we read this, Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. So the first thing he draws out, as Paul talks about us pursuing Christ as the prize, that Christ has taken hold of imperfect people. Okay? He's taken hold of imperfect people. He wants the Philippians to know that he himself, even in the fact that he has achieved so much before Christ, and now he's pursuing with passion after Christ, that he's not achieved perfection. And he says it multiple times. Not that I've reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of Christ. He actually uses some very ambiguous terms here. In the Greek, there's no object. It doesn't say what is it he's achieving. But, but we can understand. He's talking to friends. It's the kind of language he would use, right? How many, have you ever heard somebody or maybe used the term, said, look, I know I've not arrived. Anybody look at you and say, arrived where? Arrived at what? Okay, don't act like you've arrived or you have not arrived yet. And everybody goes, arrived at which house, at which place, at which state? No, we're talking about we haven't achieved the pinnacle of success. We know we have not arrived. And Paul's saying, I have not reached the goal. I have not attained. I have not arrived. I'm not perfect. I know that. But I make every effort what? To take hold of it. What is it that he's doing? In the last chapter, he says, I'm making my goal to know Christ. He makes every effort to take hold of Christ. Paul's goal from 310 is he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul races after this goal, and he does it because what was his reason? Because Christ has taken hold of him. He initiated it. Brothers and sisters, Christ has taken hold of you. If you're in Christ, he met you at some random place in your life, maybe even where you weren't looking for him. And he was gracious enough to take hold of you. Paul was on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians. And Christ took hold of him. Changed him. Has Christ taken hold of you? Because as Christ has taken hold of you, so then passionately we need to pursue after him. Because what he's initiated, he has not completed yet in this life. He wants us to pursue like Christ, like Paul, after him. And Christians, being a Christian isn't about perfection, it's about progress. Where Christ is continuing working in you. Paul didn't become magically this perfect guy. He had his own errors. He had his own disagreements. Later we see he couldn't even agree on taking one particular disciple along with him because he didn't like the guy's attitude from before. Him and Barnabas split up. They're like, nah, he didn't. He, was, he, he threw shade on me. I'm not taking him with me. So he's not a perfect dude. And he says he's not. Peter, who's like the apostle, like Primo, leader of the other disciples, Paul confronted him to his face in front of everybody else because of his error. We're not perfect, but we're prog progressing. And John, in 1 John, we're told if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have need of the Savior every day. 
Christ met each and every one of you at just the right time, no matter where you were. While you were in your sin, Christ died for you. You were not perfect, yet he still died for you. You are not perfect right now, and he still intercedes for you. In Hebrews, it says he intercedes on our behalf. He prays for you. He told Peter that. Satan wanted to take hold of you. I prayed for you. The creator of the universe, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, prays for you. It feels really good when someone comes up and tells you and reminds you that they've been praying for you, right? Don't be discouraged if all your brothers and sisters fail to pray for you or if they don't know your need. Christ does. And he prays for you. He prays that you would grow to know him more. Prays that you would know Christ more. The second thing in this passage, he doesn't only take hold of imperfect people, but he takes hold of perfect people so that we are free now to pursue God's heavenly call. 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to take hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ. Paul's using an athletic and competitive analogy here. It's not uncommon for him to do that. These terms are something of where he says pursuing after the prize, reaching forward. Actually, another translation is probably more accurate to strain. Uh, someone who's in a race or in a competition is working their muscles and all they can do. Can you imagine Olympic athletes like just half-heartedly trying once they got to that level? No. He is using that kind of terminology. And in that area... The Greeks are very familiar. If you want to talk about Olympics, they're the OG Olympics, right? They were kind of the thing there. They did their competitions and sports uh, were very intense. And their gym, gyms and gymnasiums were training. And so they would be familiar with what Paul's talking about. And he's using a similar race analogy when he talks in Hebrews chapter 12, where he says this, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. So if you hear that, he specifically says, let us run with endurance the race that, that lies before us. Like a runner, Paul's saying, I forget what's behind me. How many people, if they're in a race, are spending a lot of time looking at the starting block? How, how, how successful are you going to be if you're continuing to look at where your last step was? And, and while we could look at this and say, this means we need, to not, we need to forget about all our sin and not let it hinder us, in the context, Paul's saying, don't rest in your own achievement, but press on to pursue Christ. In Hebrews, setting aside everything that might slow you down, that weigh you down. How many runners you see in an actual competition voluntarily put ankle weights on? And a rucksack. Anybody know what a rucksack is? Okay. All right. So like a, a, a heavy backpack. All right. Throw some weight in it. People who like to punish themselves do that. But how many people in an actual competition who want to win carry all the weight? They don't. And Paul is trying to point that the only thing that matters is not your achievement. Don't rest in that. Forgetting what lies behind and forgetting all those things, setting aside the weights that would hinder you, focus on the prize, which is Christ. And Christ has taking imperfect people freed us to do this because he's taken our sin on himself. That doesn't hold us back either. Because if the sun sets you free, you really will be free. But what is God's heavenly call that we pursue? What is God's heavenly call that we pursue? When we look other places in Scripture, we see several examples of what God's heavenly call is. First and foremost, God's heavenly call is to call together his people, a people for himself. And 1 Peter 2 says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And God's mercy, 
He is calling together his people. This family, this is a grace, a kindness to pursue that community, pursue that relationship. That's a way in which we get to know Christ more. And that's, the, that's a prize that God is calling us to in his heavenly call. The second thing we see in John 17 is eternal life. And what's eternal life? To know God. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So the prize is God, the heavenly call of God is calling together his people. He's calling us to eternal life. He's also calling us to walk in good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We may know the 8 and 9 verses here. For you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Familiar with this passage maybe? Maybe you've heard it before. This is where we're saved by God's good grace. It's by our own faith in him. It's nothing that we've done to achieve ourselves. But verse 10 says, why is it that he has done this? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That is so freeing that God would prepare ahead of time for me good works for me to, to do, to walk in. A, freeing. B, not to boast in because I didn't, I didn't set it up. As we walk in obedience, God has in his heavenly call called us for good works. And so we pursue good works. We pursue the community that he's called together. We pursue knowing Christ more. And finally, the last thing is to be made more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us this. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God in you, brothers and sisters, are changing you to look more and more like Christ. This is the heavenly call we pursue. This is the prize that Paul is pursuing. He's pursuing God's people. He's pursuing knowing Christ more. He's walking in good works, and he's ultimately being made more like Christ. All of this is in Christ. All of this is a gift. All of this is God's graciousness to us, and all of this we should pursue like a runner trying to win the prize. I don't like to run. Can I be honest? These analogies I can't relate to. I really can't. We get into other sports analogies, maybe like, you know, lifting something really heavy, you know, hitting a home run, hitting the longest home run, dunking on Michael Jordan. I don't know, something like that. Or LeBron James, generationally, you get what I'm saying? But it's about pursuing with a passion that doesn't rest in the things we've done yesterday or today, but continues to press on to what God has for us tomorrow. And, and here's where this falls a little flat. Um, because in a race, the idea of the fact that my life is a race that will not end until I get to, he- get to heaven sounds really tiring. But God is so gracious that he actually, he actually gifts his grace to us as we follow him in obedience. Will we get the gift of God's people today? We get to know Christ more day by day. By God's grace, I'm not the man I was five or ten years ago. As I've been reminded over and over again, I took my wife to Atlantic City for my first anniversary. We get to be made more like him today. And we get to walk in obedience to God and walk in good works today. But we need to pursue it with the passion of a runner that's looking towards the prize, looking to Christ, like we see in Hebrews. Paul knows that as we pursue Christ, we're all at different places spiritually, and we're all growing in him. And so that goes, looks at our second truth that he's laying out, and that is to live obedient as God illuminates. See in verse 15 there, God is the one maturing you, believers. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. 
some, this could be taken a little tongue in cheek. It could be, yeah, Philippians, if you're mature enough, think this way. But that's not the tone. And actually, later in the text, it would suggest that he knows there are people there worth emulating who are more mature. So what Paul's saying in this space is that as you are mature, as you think this way, for those who are mature, continue to pursue Christ. But if you don't think this way, if you think differently, here's what I can trust. God will reveal it to you. This says a little something for us. The Spirit of God is going to first instruct and teach us. John 14 says as much. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Even our obedience, even our maturity is Christ, is God working in us. Okay? The Spirit changing us and maturing us and growing us. And Paul is acknowledging that the Spirit is at work at different places in different people's lives. Okay? We're not saved at the same place, and we're not growing at the same rate. Praise God for his grace, because he knows what you need at the right time. So there's two parts to this. Be patient and obey in this second passage, in the second part of this verse 16, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Obey to the truth that you have attained. But the other part of this is that if you are a mature believer who you find yourself frustrated potentially with other less mature believers, if you remember last week potentially, I said that I was ignorance on fire at one point. Uh, I, I'm just kind of ignorance dimly lit now. No, no I'm, I, I'd like to think I'm less ignorant on fire. But here's the truth. If you are going to run rampant with these beautiful new truths of Scripture that you are learning day by day and forget that God grew you to that place, if you forget that, you can really look judgmentally at other younger, growing brothers and sisters in a way that is just damaging to them and damaging to the body of Christ. I know. I've done it. You can hurt people. God wants us to love people. And when there's no, when there's something outside of uh, the primary things of Christ crucified for us, there should be a ton of grace. Paul is instructing the, the Philippians here, if anyone thinks differently, don't worry about that. God will reveal it to them. But each one of you live up to where God has you. So as we pursue Christ, live in obedience to where Christ has taught you. And like in this next passage, look at the other brothers and sisters behind you and say, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But, but don't, don't trip the other runners. Don't put stumbling blocks in their way. Don't sabotage their growth because they're not as mature as you are. Let's all grow and live up to the level of truth in which God has revealed to us. Be faithful in the little things. Because Luke 16, Christ tells us, whoever is faithful in very little is also going to be faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. God will continue to grow you in his time. God will continue to teach you and instruct you, and the Spirit will continue to work. Trust that, and that's how we grow. In Romans 6.16, Paul also writes this. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? What he's saying here is that as we know and understand and trust to the level that we have attained, that obedience is leading toward more and more righteousness, right? It's leading toward righteousness. And Paul also knows that because we are different maturities in our walk with Christ, that sometimes we need to, in this world, look to others who are more mature than us. And that's why his third imperative he wants to point us to is this. Imitate faithful believers to guard your life. Verse 17 and 19. 
Walk carefully after the lives of faithful men. In verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Pay close attention. He's saying, be careful. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. First, he tells the Philippians to look and imitate me, which, by the way, on the surface, can maybe feel a little arrogant. I even remember, and we'll look at this, there's another passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul tells the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And at first brush, I'm going, I don't know if I feel good enough to look at all of you and say, hey guys, imitate me. Actually, I know I don't feel confident enough to say, just imitate me, and that's going to make you like Jesus. But Paul's doing that because he's looking back and saying, I am pursuing Christ. And while I'm imperfect in the flesh right now, I'm heading in that direction. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I pursue Christ. And if there are others in your midst, he's not with them present. He knows there's other faithful brothers and sisters. He says, pay careful attention to those who also live according to the example that you have in us. And there's two sides to this coin, right? So listen, as you know, you're a young believer. Maybe you're someone that needs to grow. Look to those who have walked faithfully for years. Look to them. There's nobody in here that doesn't have something to learn. And there are people that can instruct and teach in your life, even if they're your peers age-wise. Some have just matured in areas that we can learn from. And as they imitate Paul, as they're pursuing Christ, then, man, look at their life and learn from it. The other side of that coin is this. If you are a more mature believer and you're imitating Paul, what is it that Paul is doing here? He's investing in other less mature believers. Don't, don't miss that. It's not just him saying, imitate me. He's also intentionally investing in the church because he's inviting it. He's opening up his life. He's saying, look at me and follow me. He's trying to teach and instruct and look at other believers. Paul invited the Philippians to imitate him. And listen, I know we're busy people. I know we're busy people. It's like a badge of honor, honor right? Like we're just like, man, I just... How many times you come up to meet somebody and it's like, how are things going? I am busy. Let me just tell you, if I had a t-shirt that just busy on it, my schedule packed. And sometimes, man, it just feels like you don't have space. Can I encourage this? Make room to invest in other believers. Please make room. Titus 2, the older, teaching the younger, discipling, encouraging. There's moms in here that have a lot to help other young mothers, young married wives learn. Is it okay if I use our marriage again as an example? Sorry. I didn't have it in my notes. Um, listen, I took her to Atlantic City, so our first year of marriage was okay, right? For me, I thought it was great. She thought it was eh. Okay. Being honest, right? Am I fair? Okay. One of the things she had to learn... <laughs> You can't be super sensitive with me, at least not then. I've grown. I've learned. I was really sarcastic. Shocker, right? As I've grown in Christ, that has tethered a little bit. Imagine, okay? As the sarcasm seeps from me right now. Just imagine. Uh, so, so she's learned, and I've learned. That's a grace that we can celebrate so many years of marriage. Let's invest in others so that they might learn together with us. Older men, and invest in younger men. Younger men, be willing to ask. Did you know that people may be busy, but they're not too busy to be asked? Trust me. Listen, I have missed out on years of investment in discipleship because I just didn't ask. I just assumed. And you know what? Everybody else is assuming too. Let's be intentional as we pursue Christ to pursue other believers so that we might invest. And here's the big catch. Here is why. Do you know why? Because if you're not walking carefully after the lives of other men and women, Paul is warning us. He says you will drift toward destruction. Look at verse 18. I have often told you and now say again with tears that many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they're focused on earthly things. 
let's not forget this. Can we dwell here for a minute? This isn't a game. Their end is destruction. Paul's not playing around. And we could come together and we could play church and we could have a really good time. We could make this just an awesome, great together time. We could sing songs that you love. We can do things that you enjoy. We can be a great club that's really homogenous and everybody's the same and just hang out with people that are just like you because it makes you feel better about yourself. Well, we can do the really hard work of pursuing Christ together. And can I encourage that? Because it's not to be toyed with. Paul talks about people, and he says it, he describes it again with tears. Paul's emotionally invested here. This could be those false teachers he's speaking of, and and, and they are leading that direction. So in contrast to following me, look, don't follow those people who are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. But there's also reason to parallel and say that he could be also thinking of other churches that have similar problems that are far more advanced than what the Philippians have right now. It's very much possible he's talking about some things that are going on even in churches like the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, we see, when you look at this, that God is their stomach. They're serving their desires. They're putting those over others. That's, that's, that's what he's saying there, not just like, I just want to eat, Okay. But, but, but that the internal heart desire, that is their God. And we look at the Corinthians, he's, he's challenging them because they had situations where the rich people were just coming in because they didn't have to work all day. And the blue collar workers that had to get to the end and punch the clock, by the time they showed up for the Lord's Supper, all the food had been eaten and taken over by the rich people because they had been there. They weren't thinking about them. They were just satisfying their own desire and their own satisfaction to socialize and to eat together, not thinking of others. Actually, the ones that needed it more. Or you think of this, they glory, their glory is in their shame. They're, having, they're actually showing pride and confidence in things that are leading to their own destruction. And so we can also think of the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church had one particular member who was, invi- he was involved in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And they were celebrating the grace of God. Praise God for his grace that he would even forgive the sins of such a one. They were glorying in something that was their shame, was destruction for them. And Paul told them as such. He said, you guys are happy about something that even the people outside the church think is terrible. And so he could have also been thinking about them when he thought about glorying in their shame. Because Paul is emotionally invested. He says, with tears, there are people walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not just some slight thing that you might allow yourself to be driven by your own personal desires. It's not a small thing that you would glory in things that are shameful to God. That's not a small thing. The end here is destruction. And Paul summarizes all of that up here with saying this, they are focused on earthly things. They've got earthly priorities. Their confidence is in their flesh. They are happy to indulge themselves in all the things that are abhorrent to God. And they are focused on earthly things. And I gotta tell you from my own personal experience, as I think of people in my own life who I now know, who I've seen preach, that I know are now walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's a battle. I know men who have got up and preached and have now left their wives, their kids, and are living, maybe remarried, just simply living with, the girlfriend that was more attractive to them than following Christ. It is not a game. It's not something we drift. We don't drift into holiness, friends. Let's imitate Christ. Let's invest in other believers Let's look to faithful believers and imitate their life because it's a guard and a safety to our own.
finally, the fourth truth that Paul is drawing out here is in verses 20 through 21. And it's to trust, ultimately, trust in the power of Christ to perfect you. If we're not perfect in this life, when do we ever reach perfection? Look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. If you've been reading Philippians, if you've been listening to these sermons, if you've heard any of this, this should all be familiar language. Paul is taking what started in 127. Remember when he tells us we are citizens of heaven. Now, here's an here's a interesting thing about that. Citizens of heaven isn't in that verse in the Greek. Citizens is in that heaven. I'm sorry, is in that verse in the Greek. The translators took this entire passage and said, as we are citizens, he's referring to what? Citizens, why do you walk? How do you walk and stand firm in the faith? How do you walk worthy of the gospel? Well, you must be citizens of heaven as he finishes here in this verse. He says, our citizenship is where? In heaven. He tells them, as citizens, walk this way. Where's your citizenship? In heaven. And then he goes on in this passage to say, we eagerly await from heaven. We eagerly wait for a Savior from there. Who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ. And in the passage in chapter 2, the Christ hymn, we see that Christ humbled himself as our Savior and then was exalted by God, the exaltation of Christ, so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. And Paul says, we wait for that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he going to do for us? He will transform this body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. By what power, you ask? By the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. All would bow their knee and, and all would acknowledge that he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And by that power that God has invested, that God has given to Christ, he will transform our bodies. He will perfect us. Paul is telling us, look to heaven. There's a phrase that you may be familiar with. It's gone around. It says that some believers are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I would contend, and I'm in good company, that if you are not heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. Believers are often not heavenly minded enough. We're what Paul just spoke of, to focus on earthly things. A Christian who isn't heavenly minded is not any earthly good. The early church was actually very much focused on heaven on the glory. It's what Paul is pointing them to. In AD 125, there was a Greek named Aristides, and he wrote to a friend about this new religion of Christianity and why it was so successful. And he said this, if any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God, and they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. We're in Thessalonians. He says, we don't mourn our dead as those who have no hope. They're being biblical. And we have obvious, we have evidence that as Paul is encouraging, the early church believed that there was a greater hope that's in the power of Christ. It's why earlier on in this passage, in this letter, he says, if I live here, by Christ, it's by Christ's power and me serving him. But if I died, boy, that's gain. Because ultimately, I know I'm not going to be perfected in this life. I will race after Christ. But boy, I will see him face to face in all his glory and be like him when I'm dead. That is a powerful mindset to be someone who is so focused on heaven, on glory with Christ, that that's the best thing you could ever think of happening. What is it you won't do? You sure won't fear man because they can only kill the body. You do crazy things like go overseas and you go to the deep bushes of Africa like David Livingston and say, people ask me, why did I sacrifice everything to come here? And I'm like, what? There is no sacrifice 
and what I've done here. To set aside these temporal things for the glory that is following after Christ. You do crazy things like that. You do crazy things like land a plane in the middle of some random tribe who's never known or seen anybody, hoping that you might reach them and speak the truth of Christ in them, only to be, be killed. But then God works through that. You do crazy things. You put yourself out there with your neighbors. You walk down the street knowing that ultimately this is not the end, and I have no shame in this life because my glory, my pride, is in the one who saves me, who transforms this weak, feeble body into his glorious body. Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian and pastor, was quoted as saying this, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why would we labor for or set our heart, hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness. Sounds very much like Christ's encouragement in Matthew 6, where he tells us to not store up for ourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, our treasure, our prize, our hope is in heaven. Our hope, our prize is Christ. To be not heavenly minded is, means we're not consumed in this world. Our tre treasure is in heaven. This is not our home. We are merely here as ambassadors for the kingdom. It means that we're not only not consumed in this world, we're not destroyed by this world. Our hope is in Christ. There's nothing man can do to you which can take away that hope. And he will transform our bodies. And brother, guys, this is not just simply um, some ethereal focusing our minds on him. He will transform our hearts and minds to be like Christ. He will perfect us, as it says in the text. Our perfection here. I can go to the I turned 40 this year coming up. My faith, uh, I'm sorry, my ability to uh, fashion an athletic body is dwindled away. But I can work as hard as I want to in this lifetime. But I cannot achieve, achieve perfection physically. I can study as hard as I want to in this lifetime. I cannot achieve mental perfection. Joni Erickson Tata, she's a quadriplegic believer. And she talks about this very thing when she is quoted as saying this. I still can hardly believe it. I will, I with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, who has multiple sclerosis, sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And that's why Paul's final encouragement is to stand firm in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 4 reads this. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This should also echo to you the first chapter. You are citizens in heaven. Stand firm. Paul ends. So in this manner, stand firm. He has, he has finished his thoughts. He has encouraged the Philippians. And he wraps up, in this way, stand firm. The all-powerful, all-glorious Jesus Christ, Lord of lords, King of kings, emptied himself to become a baby and humbled himself in obedience to die for your sin and for mine. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God and be found in him with righteousness from God that comes through faith alone. 
Not any works, not any performance, not any birthright of our own. He has made a way to remove our guilt before God and not only grants us forgiveness, but brings us into the family of God to adopt us as sons and daughters of the king, citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Because this world's not our own. And our greatest treasure is not here. Our treasure, our prize is to know him and be made more like him. We are weak, simple, and guilty in this feeble human body. But in his power, Christ has promised to one day transform us into his likeness in heavenly glory. But while we still live on this earth, imperfect, we pursue him. Don't rest in your achievements. Don't stumble over your failures. Keep your eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Run after him. Obey him, and you will see more and more of his glory. See his face more clearly, and you will be transformed more and more into his image. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your son. And I'm grateful for your salvation. God, you have taken us out of darkness and called us into your marvelous light. We are now a people who have experienced your mercy. God, let that rest deep in our hearts. And God, give us the passion and the drive and the desire to pursue Christ every day that we would see him more and more clearly and that we would know him more and more and we would be made like him day by day so that you would grow us and mature us and strengthen us and enable us and keep us and guard us from destruction. Grant us this today, Lord, as we continue to worship you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.